Motion pictures, can't get enough Cinephile, movie lover, and a big movie buff Talking to actors, directors, innovators Athletes to writers, real trailblazers Yeah, originator, not a duplicator So honest, always authentic Tune in, trust me, you don't want to miss it This is the Monday Morning Critic Amazing life journeys, great interviews From sports analysts, even reporters too Captivating, always top content Bringing top quality, everybody's talking Yeah, originator, not a duplicator so passionate and so authentic Tune in, trust me, you don't want to miss it This is the Monday Morning Critic Woo! Hey yo, you ready? Let's do it started acting when he was 12 years old. He studied at Carnegie Mellon. He also was at the Film uh, Institute of California, uh, BFA, one of my favorite directors on the planet, Mr. Michael Pressman. Michael, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great. That was a fabulous introduction. I'll, I'll, I'll save that one, okay? <laughs> so when I look at your life, right, so many of my guests have to kind of sell, their, sell to their parents yeah, this acting or this directing thing, it's going to work out. I really, I really want to try it. I don't think you had that problem because both, both mom and dad are actors or, or were actors, right? Well, you know, my, my mother was a dancer. Yeah. And she actually was a dancer in the Martha Graham Dance Company in the 30s. And, you know, they, go, they went way back. They, they, they are no longer with us, but they both lived into their, well into their 90s. Wow. And, and my father uh, passed away at 98 about five years ago. So he would have been 103 now. Um, and you know, he, he, he was an incredible, uh, survivor, right. my father, uh, who, uh, came from Russia when he was a child. He didn't speak English at the age of nine, uh, but loved the arts. His, he came from a musical family background. So his, um, uh, his father, my grandfather was a violist and his grandmother worked in an opera company and they came over with the Russian Grand Opera Company and landed in New York, um, traveled through Constantinople, so a long, long family history. But he turned towards acting, went to the neighborhood playhouse, became a an actor and a director in his own right in the 1930s. And then right in the middle of his career... He was uh, drafted into the army, of which he went willingly at World War II because it was fighting fascism and fighting Hitler. And let's hope we don't have a similar situation today. I won't mention names. I don't. I don't even want to mention his name anymore. Our president. Um, but uh, he fought in World War II. He was wounded twice. He came back. He started in the actor's studio. He started in live television. And then he was blacklisted. 
uh, because of his leftist leanings in the 30s, which was everybody's leanings. It's like being a Democrat today. Right, right. And, um, and he didn't work in his chosen field for 12 years, from 1952 to 1964 in terms of directing television. Um, came back and found himself in his mid-60s um, directing a daytime serial in New York, One Life to Live, and he did it until the age of 85. Wow. And, uh, he was a survivor. And when I went to film school and I wanted to be a director, and of course I had all the advantages of being exposed to the world of the arts, I remember vividly him saying to me, I don't know the movie business. I don't know Hollywood. I don't know that world. I can't help you. You have to do this on your own. That message was the greatest and strongest message I could have gotten. I knew it was coming from love. It wasn't abandonment. It was honesty. It was, this is a very tough profession. I don't know how you get started. Um, and I just wish you the best. And I will tell you, I did this on my own. I had the, the knowledge an understanding of the profession, saw lots of struggle, saw people, you know, dealing with all sorts of adversity and was aware that, in fact, what I was embarking on was going to not going to be easy. Well, he and he sounds like a super man. I mean, he, he sounds like a guy that was just a, a good man. And, you know, I have to say, it, it definitely sounds like he supported you, but he was also not to borrow from Tom Hanks and Saving Private Ryan, but he was kind of like, earn this. If you want this, you're going to have to earn it on your own. I can't help you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's even, it's even more interesting because he had old relationships from people in the business, but, you know, they were other directors and he was very close and a colleague of the, of the well-known director, Martin Ritt, who directed, you know, Norma Ray and Sounder, great movies. And he said, I go talk to Marty. And I, made a phone call. My father made a preliminary phone call and I met Martin Ritt. I was just coming out of film school. I was 23. And I remember sitting with him and he too looked at me and said, I don't know how you become a director today in this business. He said, when I started in the fifties, you know, you direct a play on Broadway, you get a movie, you Mm. get a movie, you do good work, you get another movie. He said, I don't know what's going on today. I can honestly say, I don't know how a director gets started today, which is another (laughs) subject we'll get to. But I found my way. In fact, ironically, of all times, there was another director that I went to school with named Jonathan Kaplan, great director, directed The Accused and other wonderful movies. And he got his start with Roger Corman through Martin Scorsese, who was a teacher of his. And Jonathan said, I can set you up with a meeting with Roger Corman. You pitch some ideas. I did. Um, I took me a year to get something together. Roger Corman finally distributed my very first action drive-in sexploitation comedy called The Great Texas Dynamite Chase. (laughs) And I made that when I was 25, and that's how it got started. And the reason it comes to me is I ran into Jonathan Kaplan today on the street in Studio City. I haven't seen him in years. How funny is that? I know. It was so sweet. Um, so, but you, you know, and, and I have to say, you have some wonderful people that are. I, I'm going to say your mentors, and if I'm wrong, please correct me. One of which is a legend, um, Alexander McKendrick, is an absolute genius. I mean, his his filmography reads like Spielberg's in many ways. Well, it, not only genius, legend, 
um, mentor, um, he, I studied with him for three years and I was very close to him. And, uh, I learned so much from him, so much. And he was, a uh, and also, you know, I, I, in addition to learning about the art of storytelling and the art of where you place a camera and how you tell a story, whether it's a comic or a drama. I mean, he's made The Lady Killers, which is one of the great comedies of all time, and The Sweet Smell of Success, which is one of the great dramas of all time, even though Sweet Smell of Success was a financial and critical disaster when it came out. It didn't stop him from his vision. What stopped him was failure uh, in Hollywood, and he quit. He quit at the age of 62 and became a film school teacher. And when I saw that he was starting a school, I left Carnegie Mellon, where I was studying theater, and transferred to Cal Arts. Because I wanted to study with a master. I, I didn't want to go study with a film school teacher who didn't make movies. And so I had the incredible good fortune of having uh, Sandy McKendrick, as he was known, to be my mentor. Uh, who else would you put in that mentor category, Michael? That you, you have, know, yeah. That you haven't mentioned because I know you, you talked about a couple other people. Who, who else that you haven't mentioned would you put in there? There are two other people that come to my mind. One is Robert Lewis, the famous acting teacher from the group theater and the actor studio. I went back to study acting in his class after having made six films and work on my understanding of the actor's craft. And I acted in his in his class as well as directed scenes for the theater. And he was brilliant. He was already 85 at the time. And his insights and his understanding of the relationship between the actor and the director was unique. And not about film, but about that particular subject I wanted to work on. And I found it to be a tremendous uh, gift. And then the other person who was a colleague, I wouldn't say uh, a teacher, but I learned from him, was David Kelly. Uh, on picket fences, mm. Chicago Hope and 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 Jillian on her thirty seventh birthday, and you know other series. Um, I uh, David really taught me the the art of television series and the notion of an anthology and and how to be intuitive and improvisational with characters and situations and. He had such a gift, such a gift, and um, I, 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 I felt that I had an a, a incredible learning cur curve with him, you know, and how to, where the important points are in a scene and where the turns of a story are, and um, doing episode after episode with him was, was such a gift and uh, probably one of the best uh, collaborations for me I've ever had in my career. Mm. And the, the other person who also comes to my mind, which was just one experience with a film, but changed my whole approach, was directing Richard Pryor in Some Kind of Hero. No. The, Richard Pryor and I had the greatest time together, even though he was rumored to be an impossible you know, person to rein in. We, we hit it off. This 30-year-old this, uh, short Jew and Richard Pryor being who he was. I, we, we, 
I'll never forget, he once said to me when I was on the set, he said, uh, you know, I think you're a genius. And I said, why? Well, you know, Richard, I'm not. A, he said, well, you're the worst dresser I've ever seen. He said, you don't, your shorts and your shirt don't match, your socks and your shoes don't match. He said, you don't know what you wear when you come to work. I said, I, I, can't, I can't focus on my clothes. And he said, well, you're, in, in, you're only focused on your work. And I said, okay, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it, Richard. Uh, he had the ability to come in totally prepared, know his lines, we could discuss a scene, he could rehearse it, and then when we started to shoot, he could surprise me with two things. One is it, he made it appear as if it was all improvisational. Somehow you never knew what was going to happen because he also would add one thing in a scene, two things, an extra line, an extra moment, and it was magic. It was absolute magic. And I just learned that whole idea of being open to surprise, improvisation, you know, working within a frame, but not uh, not uh, confining your work into that frame. And uh, he gave me that gift, and I got it from I got it from a genius. You know, and that, boy, is that well said. And, and believe me, am I going to get to your your film uh, career in, in a moment? But I don't think I've ever seen somebody that's a bigger victim, a, a great director that's a bigger victim of shitty marketing and bad timing, like you've been. I I, I got to tell you, I, I I've never seen anything like it, Michael. I'm going to explain that a little bit later, but I have sure. never seen anything like it. But I'm still smiling. Because you're kicking, you're still kicking ass. Because you're a good director. That's what good. That's what that's what successful people do. And I'm I'm so happy for you. Well, thank you. Uh, I will say without a doubt, uh, I had uh, in terms of film directing world Hollywood, uh, I had some big big uh, devastations in that area when, in terms of marketing and it with those lips, those eyes, Boulevard Nights, some kind of hero, even Dr. Detroit. And it was like one after the other. But it was never quality related. It was all, those movies were fantastic. I'm looking at your career. Is it fair to say, Michael, that your your professional career anyway is, is a division of thirds, right? So theater, film, and television. Is that fair? Yes. Or is, okay. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, is there one you're more proud? I mean, I know you're you're now's the television third. It seems like um, you've done. Uh, there's, there's a fourth. I'm going to come back to movies. I'm working on several projects. I'm going to be making movies again. I'm 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 I got the energy. I got the passion. Um, my yes. son is in college. I'm remarried to a beautiful, wonderful lady whom I've known all my life. We knew each other as children. Um, we reconnected. Uh, I have optimism. And I love films. I also love the theater. Television is a good friend. Television is a very good friend to me, right? I've won Emmys. I've been on hit series. I've directed pilots. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more in a TV career. Right. To be, to be in demand at, at 60, I'm going to be 69 in, uh, in July, to be in the kind of demand where I'm turning things down. You know, someone said to me literally this morning, oh, there's this great series. They want you in Toronto to do two episodes. And I said, I don't want to go to Toronto for two episodes. It doesn't mean that much to me. I love my Law & Order SVU relationship. I do three or four a year. Um, and that's great. The You're absolutely right. It's a third, a third, a third. And, you know, 
maybe we'll do a fourth, a fourth, a fourth, and a fourth because I'm going to come back into the movies. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, um, for those of you listening right now, Michael is highly, highly regarded as a uh, television um, director. But and I look at your, we, we go back to films a little bit. You never, every film you've made is was has been a great film. I mean, from what I saw today, and I've researched your life going on eight or nine hours now. I've loved everything you've put out. So, I mean, there was no real bad, I mean, you were, it's like you you were leaving film because you had a bad, you know, experience or you had bad, as far as the quality goes, you know, you've, the quality was always there, Michael, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, you know, they do say, and, and, and sometimes you don't know it when it happens because it's happening to you. They did say I probably was in director jail in terms of movies, in terms of studio financing for a couple of years after the failure uh, commercially of Dr. Detroit, which became a big cult hit only later. But at the time, it was um, it just didn't it didn't connect. Um, Dr. You know, was, Dr. Detroit's a phenomenal movie, but that was not your fault. They set you up to be in a bad position. Then they took it out on you when it came. Well, I, I, I want to get to that in a moment because I, I have really strong feelings about that. So you are you are also a guy, and I, and I don't want to leave this out. And I, we said a little bit about this, but you're a big, big theater guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is, is there a, is there what do you miss most about theater? And in other words, so you do a lot. You're spending your time in television. You have plans to get back in the movies. I think that's a great move. What do you miss most about theater when you're not there, Michael? Well, um, the, the, the excitement of working deep. Taking the time. Time is not your enemy in theater. Time is an enemy in television for sure, but time is even an enemy in movies. I don't look at it as an enemy. I see the process being, you know, the advantage, you know, the lights going down. You've got to finish. You've got to work quickly. You've got to work uh, intuitively. And there's something very thrilling and exciting about that. I literally had an experience on this last SVU where I had an, I had a, half hour to shoot a scene that was going to take two hours and I figured out how to do it because we were going to lose the light. Um, There's nothing more exciting than that when you're directing television or even with movies. I I have many of those stories with films. Theater is not about that. Theater is about exploring the character, the relationships. You work on a scene, you stage it, you look at it later, you can restage it, you can rethink it. You can run the whole play. You can see where your problems are. And then there is nothing more terrifying, exciting, rewarding than putting it in front of a live audience. That is so exciting. You know, you all of a sudden find out, oh, my God, it's working or we're in trouble. You know, and I've had both. Michael, give me a name or, or maybe a few names of someone you've seen on stage that has left a lasting impression with you, um, whether it's somebody from you know a bit ago, somebody recently, who has left, a, left an impression with you where you have been kind of blown away. And that's such an unfair question for me to ask you because you've seen so much theater, but if you had to throw a couple names out there. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to jump around and see who comes to me. I mean, there is no doubt that... I will never forget John Malkovich's performance as Biff in Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman, who was also brilliant, but right. that th- was watching electricity on stage, just absolute electricity. Um, I, uh, you know, from childhood, it's so funny, I was talking about it the other day, but even though I got to direct 
Richard Kiley in Picket Fences, he will forever stay as the Man of La Mancha, as, <laughs> as, you know, which I saw the original production of, which was just incredible. I mean, to see him go through what he went through, um, you know, from A to Z in that character was just, just, you know, so exciting. Um, you know, Zero Mostel and Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, uh, it goes on and on. Maybe others will come back to me, but um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm just so excited about seeing a wonderful play. Period. You know, there's nothing more exciting. Um, I'll tell you one that I have to say I feel connected to is I think Essa Pather Ferguson's uh, Lola and Come Back Little Sheba. She won the Tony nomination. I directed her. We have that journey together. I just watched it at the Lincoln Center Library where it was videotaped. I hadn't seen it. The play was done 10 years ago. I was blown away by her performance. I mean, wow. that was So, you know. Yeah, those are some pretty hard hitters. Have you, have you ever um, taught acting, Michael? I mean, like to a bunch, like to a class on, on, on a semi-study yes. level. Yes, I have. I have at Carnegie. I did a week when I went back as a as a director, and I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I actually, you know, uh, teaching is another big area I may go into. But I'll tell you the truth: I've, I've got too much, too many opportunities and and choices in the actual field that um, I I I teach when I direct. I have people observe, and I. Um, I feel like people learn from me on a one-to-one basis. Yeah, that's the ultimate classroom is to be, I would think, to be near you and to just get feedback from you. My God. Oh, my goodness. Um, I have to ask you. So I, I, I watch as many things. I mean, I watch a lot. I mean, I, I don't know if that means I have no life or what. But so I saw, I saw a movie. You're passionate. I, I would think so. That's a good way of looking at it. I, I saw a movie with, with Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. And I absolutely was. I just I love it. I love great acting. It's called The Upside. I have to see it. You know, there's. It's based on a French film. It is. It is. It's. A, it's a. Re, it's a remake. And and, thought, and the French film is brilliant, by the way. Yeah, so it's, a pheno- I, it's a phenomenal movie. Absolutely. But I had to ask you, like Brian Cranston, and it made me mad that he caught flack for this, that he wasn't a quadriplegic, but yet he played a quadriplegic. But you know, I, I feel like when you watch the movie, he had so much respect for that role. And if, I mean, I'm not going to speak for people that are quadriplegic. But I, there was so much respect that came out of that role. I would, just because you're such an established and, and accomplished director, what are your thoughts on that? You know what I mean? Because I know there's a show right now, The Good Doctor. Uh, Freddie Highmore plays somebody with autism. Obviously, he doesn't have autism, but there's a lot of care that goes into that role. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's confusing the 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 gift that the actor has. Versus uh, a minority uh, situation. I mean, look, you can't have a white person play a black man in blackface, right? That's just, you know, the days of Al Jolson are gone, right? right? I mean, uh, or even further back. Um, We used to have white people play Indians. It's not right. Mm. But when it calls for stretching the talents of the actor, then I, I think that the um, LBG, Q, uh, LBG community, LBGT community uh, opposing Jeffrey Tambor in Transparent is, is, is not right. I mean, it's a brilliant performance and a brilliant characterization. He's, he's a brilliant actor. 
Right, and, and, and it kind of brings me to, you know, one of the best performances in the history of cinema, and I dare somebody to call me on this, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. He's not gay, but by, my God, uh, he he that role was such an... Uh, he took so much pride in that. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very passionate I, about I that, Michael. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. I, I didn't know that there was um, uh, any controversy surrounding Brian Cranston. I don't want to say controversy, but there was... He, 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 Let's put it this way: He had a, he found himself kind of d- not defending himself, but speaking to the matter. And I, I just thought that was an unfair position. Um, and I'm going to be hopping all over the place. So I don't want to get too serious on you. But so yeah. for those of you that don't know, Michael is a two-time Emmy Award winner, uh, Justified, Chicago Hope, Picket Fences, Blue Bloods, Law and Order. Just I got to tell you, before you kind of pass, you know, go into the film uh, genre, which I think you belong in. You have to do an episode of The Walking Dead. My God, would I love to see you do one of those. I'd love to see your perspective in that kind of genre. Okay. That's that's a challenge. (laughs) I can figure that one out. That's cool. I hear... I've watched only a couple of the episodes. I'd have to sort of reverse my. They're in season eight, aren't they, or something like that? I think we're we are coming into season nine. Oh, but, but I think okay. it's good to have somebody that's a, a established director. Um, is it tough because many times series do have many directors where you're picking up a series where uh, sorry, not a series. You're picking up an episode from so, where somebody else left off and then leaving it to somebody else to take after you're done. Or is it just, no, 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 we are focused on just the X, Y, and Z scene, and that's it? Do you see what I'm no. saying? It, 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 it's a real challenge. What you have to do as a director is you've got to familiarize yourself with the, the series. Other episodes, you know, if I were to go into, you know, The Walking Dead, I, I would um, probably watch three or four seasons per Season, I probably would spend. I'd watch ten to fifteen episodes. Wow! I read the latest scripts. I would query the showrunners about the characters. I would learn the show from inside. Inside, I have a little digression. A sort of a funny story, but this was like you know, you talk about my bad luck. I'll give you a piece of good luck. So I. <laughs> I end up coming in on Justified season five and uh, a director fell out and I got the opportunity and I'm sitting there um, with the showrunner um, and he says, um, you know, we're a little nervous. We've not brought in any new directors after season two and you're the first one. And, and uh, I, I just want to say, and before I could finish before he could finish, Graham Yost, great, great writer. Down outside the office, down the hall, Mel Brooks is entertaining. Now, Mel Brooks had an office upstairs. And Graham says, oh, you know what? Let, let, let's take a break. Let's go say hello to Mel. So we all, the writers, we walk out in the lobby, into the hallway. And what Graham doesn't know is that Mel Brooks has been a big fan of mine from those lips, those eyes. <laughs> So I stand there and he goes, oh, hi. And Mel is saying, I watched the last episode. Why did he do this? And then, and then he says, I want you to meet our new director, Michael. Pre-. And before he could finish, he goes, Michael Pressman, what are you doing here? And I went, well, I'm going to be directing. Just- oh, my God. Do you know, guys, how lucky you are? Those lips, those eyes. Uh, he wouldn't stop for 10 minutes. Wow. 
by the time we left that hallway, Graham was like, okay, meeting over. We're good. You know? <laughs> so sometimes you get lucky. Yeah. Has there ever been a show where you watch and you're like, I would love to just get a hold of that show for one episode, like a Breaking Bad or whatever. Like, is there a show that you watch where, because I mean, whatever you do, you, your, your work is eclectic. You can do any, you can do anything. I've seen it, right? Is there, right. is there something that you see in your own time that you're like, boy, would I love to get a hold of one episode of that show? You know, it's funny. I, I, you know, I, I don't put myself through that too much. When I watch something that's really good, I, I, I get excited, period. I, I like the work. Um, you know, I was, uh, I mean, I was so glad to do Sneaky Pete. I loved that show. Uh, and I yes. Direct, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, my wife says, oh, you should get uh, Game of Thrones. And I go, oh, listen, honey, I, I, I love Game of Thrones. But let's stay home and watch it. I don't want to go travel and be, <laughs> be told every frame what to do. And that, you know, they, they've got it down. Yeah, they're great work. I got no complaints. Yeah, uh, I, I don't put myself through that. So you know, I, I have to tell you, if Doctor Detroit came out today, it would be the number one of the number one movies. Not not only a movie of the year, but certainly a comedy. Because I can't tell you the last time a good comedy was released. And I think it would have fit better in today's society. And yeah. just the way, and none of this, Michael, by the way, is your fault. It's a, it's not a cult classic because I feel like cult means like, oh, you have, you kind of have to, it kind of takes time to like, it's a great movie. Let's call it what it is. It's a okay. great movie. You know what? You're, I, I so appreciate your, your, your point of view. What can I tell you? <laughs> but I, I, I do think it, w- it would have done better with better marketing, all yep. things that are out of your control. But you know what? What a, what a great movie. I mean, I know you let Dan. I mean, you had to have a positive experience with Dan Aykroyd. I mean, is it is it one of those loved, loved Dan Aykroyd? Loved him and the whole cast. It was one of the great experiences. You can tell by seeing the movie. There was such chemistry on the screen between everybody, and I tried to keep everybody in in master shots. You know, I did a lot of wonders with everyone moving around and. You know, uh, um, you know all the all the, the ladies of the night. They were so fabulous, every one of them, and um, we had a blast. Yeah, and and you had a bad luck release weekend because you went up against Return of the Jedi, which is also not your fault. Like you, uh, I think we were. I think were we up against it, or were we like uh, what happened? We were. It was close. It was within it was like a week before, and then it was like no one thought about Doctor Detroit. They were all going to Return of the Jedi. So there you have it. But there's been a lot of movies that, and like Doctor Detroit, that really took off after the cinematic release. Shawshank Redemption being one of them, like right, well, one of the great movies. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I mean, I'm stunned as to how. I mean, I just recently did the whole commentary uh, with Shout Factory on Doctor Detroit a year ago. It wow. just came out on on, on Blu-ray. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was when we talk about some kind of hero. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned Richard Pryor. He does not get enough credit for that performance. I've been holding on to that for a little bit now. I I have to agree with you on that one, and I don't understand that completely. Is it because they're not familiar with the film, or is it because he's doing something different that's subtler than than the other work? I I don't understand. You know, I think the problem is when you have people that go to the theater and they see Richard Pryor, they're expecting like. I don't know, an hour and a half of F words as opposed to a phenomenal actor? Is that because I'm going to tell you, to some of the greatest comedic people we have alive now, 
have done some phenomenal serious movies. Uh, Will Ferrell's done some great serious movies. I mean, we, we can name right. a bunch of people. But I'm going right. to tell you right now, he does not get enough, and you don't get enough credit for how how good that movie is. It's a it's a movie that is it's it's a very complicated movie. It's it's got it drama. Is. It's got comedy. It's it's a you, you have to enjoy the movie for what it is. You can't judge the movie before you've seen it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I I. Uh... I haven't looked at it in a long time, so maybe I should revisit as a viewer. I'd be curious to see what it, what it, what the experience is. All right, so I have to ask you this because this is a, a good luck because a lot of people ask you about this and they love it. You know, I have to ask you about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Of course, I was. When were you going to get to Teenage? <laughs> you have so many things I have to talk about. Okay, okay, let's get. There. I'm waiting. I've been waiting. The best line i have for you is because i recently saw the sound man who did the sound on ninja turtles and i said to the sound guy david kirshner i said you know by the way i'll never forget my conversation i had with your eight-year-old son who was there spring break and we were shooting the movie in north carolina and he's there looking at everything and i went to him and i said i gotta ask you a question i said do you do you think the ninja turtles are real and the little boy looked up at me he said of course they're real and I said, well, then what's going on here? Who are all these people? He said, oh, they're just actors telling, telling their story. And it was like he had no problem at all. That We were recreating the real turtles. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. It was like, oh, I see. So the turtles are real. They live in the sewers. But we're just sort of telling the story about them. He said, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But isn't, so, it, but isn't it amazing, though? I've named three fantastic movies. Isn't it surprising what lasts as far as what the public thinks? Like, it's like three phenomenal movies. Like, I don't know. I know. I know. Well, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was an aberration for me uh, because I was doing a television movie and uh, the producer of a TV movie had gotten hired. Terry Morse, whom I knew very well, and they were doing the sequel, and they needed a director to come on quickly. And I had my one big success was the Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, which was, as at the time, sequels were not notoriously successful. And that movie went on to great box office, great success, and it still plays on television 30-some years later. So that was, that was my calling card. Get the guy who did the successful sequel. So I, I, I went to see it, the first one, on the weekend. I went, oh, my God, I, I think I can do better than this. And I had a little boy starring in a television movie. And I said, can you explain a little? And he went, why? And I said, well, I might get a chance to direct the sequel. He said, oh, you have to. You have to. And <laughs> tell me all the characters, what the backstories were. With so I heard it from a 10-year-old. And I retained this idea that I've got to make a movie from the point of view of anyone between, you know, 6 and 10. So there was a childlike, Marx Brothers-like, almost, you know, Three Stooges approach to telling the comedy of that film. So it was a very adult, sophisticated person going into the body of a of a, of a ten-year-old. I mean, I suppose today, you, you, if you make that movie today, I think you really would have to hire a, a real Ninja Turtle, huh? I mean, I <laughs> You couldn't have a, a white Jew direct that movie. <laughs> yeah, a, a guy who did a fantastic job of directing it too. I mean, but but that's but that speaks to the eclectic nature of what you do, Michael. And that's a, that's the ultimate compliment. I mean, those three movies we just named again, they couldn't be any more different, but they're still all great in their own way. And I mean, that is the fact that we're still talking about these movies. 
It's, it's a testament to your abilities. Well, thank you, because uh, I, I am surprised we're still talking about it. I, I went to the 25th anniversary screening of Ninja Turtles last year, a midnight screening at some festival in New York, and I introduced the film, and you know, someone in the audience asked me, you know, did you ever think you'd be here today, 25 years later, introducing this movie? And I had to say, honestly, absolutely not. Mm. I didn't, I mean, are you kidding? I had no idea that this film would be as, as beloved as it is today. Have you ever done a, a Comic-Con, Michael? Have gone to one where people meet, greet you, stuff like that? No. No, I can so see you doing one of those because I mean, my God, look at look at your look at your filmography. I mean, that movie yeah. alone. Yeah. Well, so where do they exist? These comics? Oh my goodness! There's one for Star Wars. Uh, the San Diego one is the biggest. I mean, I, oh, I, I can see you doing a lot of these just because of of what you've done. I mean, I I don't know. I you'd be pr- right. you're very good with people. So Thank um, you. Might uh, be fun. Too. So I got to tell you, my streak of not getting upset or crying during an interview might be over today. So um, I'm going to warn you ahead of time. Um, Good. No, we're not. We're not. We're not. You know what? Here's the thing. I'm going to say you reminded me of another big moment in my career. I remember after those lips, those eyes came out and I was really kind of destroyed because that was a real work of passion in terms of theater and the background of summer stock. And it was like my own personal story, even though it was written by somebody else. I felt like I identified with the story. And Charles Champlin, who was the critic of the L.A. Times, who loved Boulevard Nights and who loved Those Lips, Those Eyes, um, took me out to lunch. And he was like, you must be devastated. He said, my God, what terrible luck you've had with those two movies. I mean, what a what a tough situation. And I was I was 30 years old and I maintain the same attitude today that I had then. I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. I was the luckiest guy in the world. I got to make movies. Mm-hmm. Who gets to make movies? Who gets to go to film school and, and have these opportunities again and again and again? I mean, yes, do I fantasize I could have been, you know, where Steven Spielberg is? I mean, everyone has that fantasy, right? But Or other directors. But, you know, then you got to get realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, you go... You know what a what a gift I've had. What a gift. Yeah, I think you're selling yourself a bit short because I, I mean I read a lot of things online, and I have to tell you, you, you the way you are so highly regarded in TV because it's it's what you've been doing uh, recently. I mean, people think the world of you. I mean, I, I would. I, I mean, you've you've certainly done a great job in that uh, that venue. But I have to say, so in 1977, I get this 26 year old guy right makes this movie has to follow up a classic called Breaking Training, The Bad News Bears. Is this guy overwhelmed? This 26-year-old guy right out, almost right out of film school? Yes. yes. I, I was overwhelmed. I'll never, the very first day of shooting on the ball field, I got a rash over my legs from the wind, I thought. I think it was nerves. Um, I, I, and I And I remember that the cameraman – because this was pre-monitors, said, look, every shot you get, I got a B camera, uh, I'll get another angle. And I remember saying, I I, I don't know, I, I can't focus on the B camera. Anyway, we shot uh, double takes. I do a two shot, he'd do a close up. I'd go to the close up, the other camera would go to the two shot. And they looked the dailies, it was like an hour's worth. And remember Michael Eisner was his first job as studio head. He said, if this continues, we're firing this kid. 
And I remember the Leonard Goldberg, the producer, came out and said, what's going on? And I said, well, I, I'm so confused that they keep throwing up the second camera. He said, tell them to take, put the second camera away. So there I was, day two, and I'm setting something up. And Fred Conenkamp, cameraman, bless his heart, says, I'll just get a second camera. I said, Fred, I don't need a second camera. And he goes, it's free. I said, it's not free. It's going to cost me my job and maybe my career. He went, oh, okay. Anyway, I got through it. But then I started to get comfortable, and then I started to really soar. And they started to love the dailies, and they screened the film, and it screened off the charts. And um, I, I remember feeling that I would jump into the deep end of the pool and almost drown, wow. and then and then got myself back up and started to swim. Uh, are you intimidated in any way when you see like Dolph Sweet, William Devane, Clifton James? Is that a little overwhelming for you, or are you just, you know what, I'm confident in my ability? Not really. Um, no. Um, I knew one thing. Actors like to be taken care of, and actors like to be directed. Honestly, I tell you the truth, actors like to be directed. There are a few that don't. And it's probably because it's self-protective. But if they feel you're on their side, they may open up. So they're in the most vulnerable position. I know as a, as a director, I'm behind the camera. They're in front of the camera. So they're exposed. My job is to protect them. I think that's always been my approach. So once that happens, the notion of intimidation kind of goes away. Now, if you ask me, and I fantasize a great lens, what would it have been like to have directed uh, Marlon Brando, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, you, you, they present you with this opportunity to direct part two of a movie that was hugely successful. But they say, you know what, Walter Matthau, uh, Tatum O'Neill, not a part of it. I got to tell you, if I was in your place and I was thinking about this today... That's an advantage for you because I don't think they would have fit this movie. I, and, and I'm not saying – this is going to sound really wrong. I'm glad they weren't in this movie because I loved what they did in the first one. It was it was pure magic. It was beautiful. Great movie. Great first movie. I went to see it and I remember reading they were doing a sequel and I went, what can they do with this? And then I got a phone call yeah. coming in and on it. I said, what could you do? And, and by the way, thank God for Paul Brickman. A great screenwriter who right. came up with the whole let them play thing and figured that out. R risky oh. business. Yeah. Yeah, great, great writer. And so when they tell you, okay, you know what? We've got this great movie for you. How do you feel when you find out those two aren't in it? Are, are you happy? Are you, are you worried? Are you, what, what's your mind state? What's your state of mind uh, at that point? No, I, I, I actually wasn't disappointed. I mean, I was disappointed that Walter Matthau wasn't in it because I'm such a Walter Matthau fan. But um, I was up for the challenge. I, I was scared about the fact of what are they doing? Are we, are we going to be just buried because we don't have any of the elements? Um, but, uh, you know, to give a lot of credit, by the way, to Leonard Goldberg, he made that studio promote that movie the way it was promoted. And he made them spend the money to release that picture. And he, he delivered a hit mm -hmm. in, in terms of, you know, distribution because i remember him saying i just went in and found out what they're spending and i've told them double it and he you know approved the campaign and so that was a good campaign that was really like you know um uh 
you know, the little rascals on the run, you know. <laughs> you know, and I wanted to ask you, do you have any collaboration with Michael Ritchie? You, you know, as far as, do you, like, just, just, just. No, no, Michael Ritchie, be perfectly frank, was not, um, not forthcoming. I, I, I wanted to meet him, and I did, and he was very nice, but he wasn't very helpful, and, and in fact, he uh, didn't want the sequel to be made. I don't think he wanted his work to be tampered with because he, he wasn't he wasn't very very friendly. Mm. And in fact, they went ahead in the third one, and he took over the third one, and that turned out not to be very successful at all. No, and that's too bad because the, the the two movies are beautiful movies in their own separate ways. That's that makes me that's a little upsetting to hear that. Um, let me ask you so. You know, you you have this challenge in front of you. How long does it take you to to map out what you want to do with this movie? Is it how much of it is Paul Brinkman? How much of it is is you just sitting together? How do you guys map out where you want? Because the the first movie obviously is legendary. We, we both agree with that. Um, it's one of my all time great. It's it's one of the all time greats. How yeah. do you decide where to go? And that's a lot of pressure too, right? Because so we had we had we had uh, we were locked in a room for six weeks. Wow. We had a we had an earlier draft that Paul threw out. That was about going to play at the Houston Astrodome, and Paul came up with two critical ideas, and then he was able to write. One was the game gets post canceled in the middle of it, and it reunites the father and the son and let them play. That was the first idea he had, which was like now I know how to write the script. So everything was building up to that. Um, we would talk through scenes every day, but he, uh, he, he, he wrote the script. Now, where I came into play was capturing the, the, the uh, emotional connection between the kids. I mean, like that whole dinner scene stuff, you know, about uh, those were all improvised moments. There was like a one word of dialogue, but then these kids just went on and the editor did a fabulous job of putting all those pieces together because I ran, you know, 10 minutes of dinner conversation between each family and had them improvise. And that was when I realized, you know, I'm off to the races on this. This was like the second week of shooting. And then um, uh, a lot of these stuff on the ball field was all improvised by me and, um, you know, the way I shot them at the, at, the, uh, at the hotel and the running around and all that was sort of choreographed, you know, in terms of directing. And, um, and then, you know, the, uh, another great, great good fortune was um, landing in the Houston Astrodome and the first shots that we did, because I had to shoot for seven days in the dome and I had to map out every direction to move the background we had like a thousand people so a thousand people were behind home plate a thousand people were behind first base second base, whatever the first shots were towards home plate and i had to run the team through to get up to bat and these kids couldn't believe they were standing in the Astros. <laughs> look on these kids faces coming up to bat they, that was not acting they were they were they were like uh transforming control and when that poor little tiny Mexican, the boy who, who, who strikes out, he says, he says, he says, an improvised moment. I don't know if you remember that. He says, I'm going to hit it. And then he <laughs> strike out. And he was so, he almost broke into tears. He looks, le- he looks legitimately devastated. I just yeah. watched that scene. He looks devastated. So he was. Yeah. He, now, 
The other thing that happened in that film, and I give, and I actually wrote to Bill Devane about three or four years ago because I found a photograph of him with my parents whom they who visited, um, was that he saved me in that whole Houston Astrodome film sequence because when I shot him at first base, he reenacted every inning, and it would be cut pick up, cut, pick up, and he'd go, okay, who's on second? What's on third? Do I know who's on ho- at home at bat? And he would improvise every relationship and yell and carry on, and he told the story through his eyes, and that was not in the script. Yeah, and I have a lot to say about him, and, and I, I, I just I, – his I never once doubt that he was their coach and how much he cared for those kids. He's patting them on the back. He's holding their hand. He's – he is their coach. That, yep. that, that, it's almost deeper than acting, if that's a weird way of saying it, Michael. You're talking about a moment that brings me to tears when they run off the field and he's holding the hands of the little boy. I mean, he, 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 he's so connected with them. And then, and then you, you know, he's a terrific ball player. I mean, right. all that stuff when he trained with them. He looks was, good. All, is, all improvised. Yeah, and, and I have to say, you know, I, I'm, there's two sh- – the, the cinematography in this movie – there's, I was on the treadmill today watching it. And I had to step off because I was getting a little emotional. When 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 Kelly Leak is, is Jackie's at the Astrodome and the sun is 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 coming either up or down. Yeah. And he's looking at the Astrodome. My God, is that a powerful scene? And the other one is when he's running away after the fight with the with the I know. and and the close up on him just because it summarizes the frustration he has with his with his father. It's just. It's I don't know those little things in this movie. I, it's it's hard to ignore. It's just such beautiful, beautiful movie making. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, I I um, it seemed to be, have a tremendous look. You know what? That's what we do. That's what we do. And uh, I I have nothing more to say about it. But it's 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 the job of digging in. You know, you shoot some stuff. There's stuff that isn't used. But I also love. You know them in, on the road in that motel, and him watching the gift, the gift one for the gipper, and you know what's his name, the little uh, loop, loop, looper. Yeah, does um when you watch that, are, do you know? I mean, because I really feel like the rapport with with Kelly and his dad between Jack Earl Haley and William Devane is really something special. Like, I really feel like I'm watching two experts in their craft. Granted, one's a teenager at the time, one's a little bit older. Do you, do you feel that? Do you know there's something special there? Oh, I, I knew there was something special there. The, the, uh, Paul Brickman wrote it for that character of Kelly Leak, and Jackie Earl Haley was a brilliant young actor. Only later do we realize how brilliant he was and right. is. At the time, uh, he was hard to read, you know, and, and he, wasn't, um, he wasn't an easygoing, forthcoming kid. You right. know, um, and and Bill was also a little edgy. They they had a very edgy relationship once. Both I I don't know about behind the camera because it never came into play, but uh, they, they were not lovey dovey as as two actors. You know, they were they were they, they challenged each other. And, and, and but but does that I guess that comes to th- that shows that kind of reflects on screen. Is that a fair way of looking at that? It does completely. Um, it does. So, so I and you know this this entire movie is is there is there a part of this movie that that you're that you love that you love watching that, that is there a part that always gets to you even years later? 
Um, that that dinner scene I'm telling you about. Yep. Um, the whole the whole let them play in the ball field is it always gets me. That was that was a high point of of storytelling, emotional drama, and filmmaking. There was so much to do in that. I mean, that was truly overwhelming. Overwhelming. Yeah, and, and is did, did the kids know that Bob Watson and Cesar Cedeno were going to be there? Was that a surprise too? Uh, I think that was a surprise. Oh, that that, that plays well too because once the kids see him, that's a genuine reaction. Oh, I know, I know. They were they were blown away. So I got to tell you, the, the the music is perfect in that last ten minutes. Like it's perfect. Yeah. I got to yeah. tell you, "Looking Good" might be the best song I've ever heard to end a movie. I've wow. searched for that thing everywhere. Like if- you can't get it. I don't think. You know what? The one thing that they were upset with me about it, and, and I think in retrospect, the picture might have made two million more dollars. But who cares? Was um, in the temp version when they screened it for a bunch of kids, they uh, they had they played the Leo Sayer song "You Make Me Feel Like Dancing," and when they were in the van going to Me- uh, to Texas, right? And I will say that the whole audience was like eight year olds and ten year olds, and they're all singing "You Make Me Feel Like Dancing," and I just thought that was criminal. And I thought that was not that was breaking an aesthetic. Today, I might have said, "Sure, let's do it," you know, and it would have been fine. It wouldn't have hurt the movie. In fact, it probably would have made it even a bigger classic. I don't know. Is it any harder, Michael, to shoot with kids versus just you're working with adults? Is it any more difficult? I mean, I hate to sound like a master of the obvious because I know sometimes kids can be a little quirky, but so can adults. But is it any more difficult? Uh, there's, there's a challenge and then there's a reward. The challenge is you really have to know what you want and talk them non, uh, intellectual terms, but like, you know, he really, like, he really upset you. That guy said that to you and, you know, you, you, I mean, don't, don't let him know how sad you feel, but you don't have to open just privately, you know, I mean. He really hurt you. And you talk like with feelings and, and, and sensitivities. And then the beauty is uh, the rewards are phenomenal because they're not acting. They, they, they haven't been taught or spoiled. I just did an episode. In fact, uh, I recommend you to watch it. Uh, the last uh, SVU I did in July called Zero Tolerance. It's episode three and it stars a nine-year-old girl who uh, is miraculous. She's a, a girl separated from her parents at the border, escapes, go to New Jersey, escapes the foster parents, and ends up in a, 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 um, in a string of girls being sold. And they save her, and they reunite the mother and the daughter. But it's a heartbreaker. In yeah. fact, in fact I, I, I think it's one of my best SVUs. And I remember when we were shooting, the little girl was kind of driving the actors crazy because she was so scattered and at one point you know Mershka Hargitay whom I love who is brilliant who is so collaborative and wants to be directed and we have a great relationship was like this little girl's annoying me and I said I have to love her to get her performance and she said I get it I agree I get it I'm sorry so they they have to tolerate some childish behavior but when you put the film together this girl is unbelievable 
Yeah, beautiful. And, and let me ask you, so these kids, you know, when, it, when, it, when it, just a couple more questions on, on Bad News Bears. So, like, you see Tanner's performance. Are, are you are you blown away by that? Like, I mean, it, do these kids already know? I mean, I know they know the rules. That's a stupid way of looking at it. But do they know what they're supposed to say? In other words, so when you let the actor who plays Tanner out, and I, uh, Chris Barnes, when you let him, yeah, when you let him out, is he just... Is he in Tanner mode, all red ass and ready to curse up the yeah, world? He lo- but you see, uh, Michael Ritchie did the most amazing job in casting. So I inherited those kids. I ended up having a great relationship with them, but boy, was that brilliant casting. And and Marion Doherty gets a lot of credit for that, too. And Marion Doherty, who is no longer with us, brilliant casting woman, was the one who said, Bill Devane, Bill Devane. And I went with her you know, instinct. She also was 100% right. Um They loved their characters. I met with them for a week before we began shooting, and I actually helped them learn their lines. And they did their lines. And then I would say, you know, you guys can do whatever you want, make it up, or da-da-da-da. But a lot of it is scripted. Um, And I'll never forget, talk about um, kids, Uh, the boy who played um, Engelbert, um, Jeffrey Lewis Starr, who's now a man in his 50s, I assume, who I see on Facebook occasionally, um, was 12. And he had never, never been in a film. And I interviewed him and, they, and he was just, he was just like so innocent and honest. And he said, I said, do you have any questions? And he said, yeah, uh, do I have to learn all my lines before we start shooting? And I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're gonna, it's going to shoot over 50-some days. And he looked at me, start, I said, oh, I thought we start and don't stop, and we just shoot the whole movie. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. Well, you have to learn your lines like just for that scene. Oh, okay, okay. It was like he thought he's going to show up, and we're going to make the movie like without stopping. Do you know what I mean? Right, 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 right. So, so now – we're shooting for several weeks and he realizes now we shoot a little at a time and we shoot it again and we get it right. And if you make a mistake, you can do it over. And he's, he's relaxing a little. I'll never forget this moment. And I'm going in the hotel and he's coming running down the hallway of this holiday inn we're staying at. And there's a pool and he's in his bathing suit and he's got a towel and he's running past me. And I said, Jeffrey, I just want to tell you, um, you're doing great. And I've seen these dailies and you're wonderful. And he goes, dailies. What, what's, what do you mean? I said, we watch what we've shot. And he goes, you mean you take it out of the camera? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. He said, I thought it stays in the camera like, you know, a roll of film when you're finished. Then then you take it to the camera store and you process it. I said, no, 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 no. We watch it all. Oh. And, of course, the payoff is I run into the kids a year and a half later about five of the bears are at an ice cream parlor, Baskin and Robbins in Hollywood, and they've, just, they've come back from Japan, and they've had a great time, and Jeffrey's there, and he said, by the way, they say the dailies look great. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, he's, heard, he's learned the lingo. He, he, he's been, it was so funny. It was, uh, was Jimmy Bale your decision? Because I thought that was a great one. You know, yes, yes. He was an, he was an additional cast, and uh, – he, he turned out wonderfully. I felt he. I think he, I felt like he he faced an uphill battle because he, I, did. he took a little bit of the brunt of and, and it, 
absolutely was disgusting because it's not his fault. You know, being a new cast member, you know, you have, uh, you know, a, a few that aren't there anymore. And he comes in and does a great job, phenomenal job. But, you know, th that's where Paul, I have to give credit again in terms of structure and writing, is he wrote into the fact that they didn't easily um, uh, accept him in the, in the story. Right. And he was a bit of a blowhard. And it turns out that he's a terrible pitcher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he says, oh, I can do this. He can do that. And he imitates all these pitchers. That was totally Paul. And then, of course, you know, he's he's hitting the batters. And I think we that I added. But, you know, and that's where, of course, the payoff is. You know, if you remember, Carmen Ranzani is the one who hits the final hit. I just watched it. I just watched it. And, and then Bill Devane added that line. Come on, Carmen. It's, it's what we're here for. That was all. Well, that was Bill. You, he says, "You're, you're, you're the, what is his line? He yells at you. You're, you're the man. You own it, or something. I forget what he yells at, but you can do it. Yeah. You can do it. He, you uh, know. He, and it's here for you know, boy, was that exciting? It's stunning to hear that 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 Devane and 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 Jack Earl Haley didn't get along because I got to tell you, well, I just I feel like it was just such a. I don't want to say beautiful because it seems like over the time it's just such an awesome on-screen rapport. You know what I'm saying? I just can't tell you enough. But there was, there was. Uh, I don't want to say that they didn't get along. What I really think it was is that there was a distance between the two of them. I don't think they hung out together, and I don't think that there was any kind of affection off-screen. But what was on-screen was a tension of getting of not getting what they needed. I got and you. That, okay. That, okay. That last moment. You know, he says, would you have called me if if you didn't need a coach? Yeah, you know? yeah. And it, it does – that's a scene like that. And I feel – unless I'm wrong, we never really learn why. I mean, we know that Devane's character is flawed, but we never find out why. We just know he's – he made he makes mistakes. Was there ever a temptation to insert problem here kind of thing where the audience uh, – there was, there was a scene that was cut which didn't really explore it that much, but there was a scene between him and the girlfriend. I gotcha. That didn't, that didn't play. That it just didn't play. And in fact, you know, I think what's there is a kind of appropriate mystery. You know, obviously he's a factory worker. Something went wrong with that marriage. He kind of abandoned the kid. He hadn't seen him in years. They weren't in touch. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, it was like he went on and it wasn't like he went on with anything that was like special. I mean, this was a lovely lady. She shows up in that car and, you know, that was it, you know, and then he clearly takes on the job of being coach. He never he never goes back to that relationship. And that's where we had a scene that was cut that was like, you know what, we don't we don't want to know about that. We want to know about his relationship to the team. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I got to say. Why do we love these guys so much, right? Is it because they're so imperfect? It makes them perfect. Does that make any sense? Like they're so even the coach. Everyone's so flawed that yeah. it makes I don't because today this movie would never have been shot. It would have been a Disney movie where everybody was cookie cutter. Everybody looked the same. They acted the same. I shouldn't say looked the same, but they it would have been nobody had the the obvious flaws that maybe weren't so. I don't want to say PC, but whatever. Which, I, but you got to give that to, to to again to Bill Lancaster and Michael Ritchie because they set they set the the um, the uh, stage for that, and we followed that. I mean, we kept it there. We didn't want to go. Let's make it cookie cutter and you know Disney like. I never watched 
I think it was a short, short-lived TV series of the Bad News Bears. Do you remember? Jack Warden was Oh, my it. God. And then there was a rip-off show, too, right? Uh, it was like, it was not the Bears. It was called, um, uh, it was like Bad News some Tigers or something. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was not. Uh, so the groundskeeper, last question. Boy, was he great. You know, yes. You know, terrific actor, by the way. Terrific actor. I forget his name, but he was not a groundskeeper. He was a wonderful actor. I mean, to pull off, you know, hello, how are you? You know, <laughs> he, And that was, in fact, you were really reminding me, that was the best shooting day. I think that was day five or six. And that I was given a whole day to shoot that. And we got every friggin' angle you can imagine. And I detailed everything. And uh, it was beautifully edited and beautifully shot. And that was when I realized, gee, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I can start really playing because there was a lot of improvising in that sequence. You know, I always find out like it's those kind of actors that don't say much that are like the Shakespearean trained guys. You know, it always or, or girls like it always works out that way. I mean, you we are bringing up stuff here. That movie I made in 1975. Are we talking 40 years ago? Oh my god. I can I can't, I can't I, I, it's hard to believe. I cannot believe if that. You're talking 40 years ago. I am pulling stuff out of my you know what. <laughs> I, I do not remember that actor's name. I would probably guess he may not be with us anymore. Dolph Sweet has passed. Um Is it Fre I, uh, Fred uh, Stuthman? Yeah. Fred. Yes. Fred. Yeah. What's, what's the last name? You're uh, it's S-T-U-T-H-M-A-N. So Stuffman? Fred Stuffman. I don't know if he's still with us, is he? He passed in 1982. He died at 63. Um, but you know oh, what? what? He, he, he. Oh, my God. I'm looking at his filmography. He's done some. He was in Escape from Alcatraz, Marathon Man. You weren't lying, were you? No. Wow. Um, it's, I, I don't know. I, I just – I watched this movie on the treadmill, and I got to tell you, it just never – it has aged so well, and – Oh. So so what what is your take on why these kids are so beloved? Like we're talking about this like you said 40 years after the fact. What, what, why? Uh, uh, and, and, and you're a big part of this. I, 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 I mean I think it's I mean in addition to the characters that were written in addition to the um the in the the idea that they were you know um wise guys and all that stuff. They were the underdogs, the true underdogs. You know, they're being put in these incredible obstacles. How are they going to, and especially with the film that, that I made, how are they going to beat these these tough bullies, these kids who are bigger and stronger and and tougher and, you know, heartless, and they throw the ball at them and they laugh and they're chewing that tobacco and <laughs> all that was made up. I mean, we added all that stuff, you know, but th that was what was going on. You know, they, they, they were really... Uh, uh, the, 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 they had, they had such obstacles and they were such underdogs. They were going to get creamed. You know, you care for the underdog. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I have to tell you, my father in real life is a mensch. He is, I love him beyond belief, but I have to tell you, I've always looked at Mr. Lee, uh, uh William Devane as my fictional dad. I always, Oh God, I, I, I just, it was such perfect casting. Like you said, he is, I, I bet you all those kids felt like at any moment he could have been their coach. He could have been their dad. Just a yeah. loving figure. I couldn't. That's what kept with me this whole time. Is it's, it was never forced. It was never like an actor going through the motions. It was like a a, a father taking care of his family. Right. You know. 
And uh, by the way, another movie you don't get enough credit for uh, to Jillian on her 37th birthday, by the way. FYI. Thank you. If we're talking, <laughs> I mean, I-, I hope your back doesn't hurt because I've been patting it a lot lately. <laughs> but I'm gonna- I know you have. But- I know you have. I mean, gee, I, I-, I-, I didn't trip up anywhere. <laughs> no, you did it. And I-, and I don't want to sound like somebody that's patronizing, but I mean it. I mean, that- I remember my girlfriend, we-, we sat down recently and watched it. That movie's a great movie. Like, I, I don't know. I mean,. Well, it's 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 again, it's a very particular film that I think I have to say it again. I think it went very misunderstood at the time. I know people now who absolutely love it, and um, the only thing I would say if I were to look at it differently, and I'm I'm, I'm talk about another movie in a second. Um, I'm, we may have not gone far enough. I had the right idea tonally. Uh, I didn't want to judge. I didn't want to comment. I wanted to, you know, uh, keep traditional frames. But, you know, when you look at a movie like, look, I just saw the masterpiece of masterpieces. I mean, this Roma is an amazing film. Right. And he, and it's made me think about what I want to might do in the next film, which is, uh, stand out more. I mean, he didn't just do these luxurious shots. They went on forever. They went on forever. I, I so admired it. What that whole sequence when the kids almost drown and she goes in the water and then she's all one take. There's not a cut in that seat. I mean, and, and what it's about is not bravura per se. It's about experientially being there. And you're so moved by it. But I couldn't help as a filmmaker going, OK, he went the extra mile on this. He didn't give you a conventional view. He gave you a view of memory. Do you do that a lot? Do you, do you watch other directors and learn from them? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, all the time, all the time. I'm always, you know, when I see great work like that, I, my, my hat's off to them. I mean, that is just a masterpiece. And then, um, you know, uh, I also loved recently, uh, a year ago, I watched Call Me By Your Name. I was so mm. blown away by that film and, you know, I just saw the favorite. God, is that beautifully done? I almost want to go see it again because I think that I was reading about the, the relationship between the director and the cameraman, and the director said, "No lights. I don't want lights." And it was shot on film, not digital. Uh, do you ever doubt yourself when you look back at some of your work? Do you say, "God, I wish I shot that scene differently," or "Damn it, you know, I, I wish that scene went this way and not that way"? Yeah, sometimes, sure. Sure. But, but I also, but, but that's a two way street because I bet you you're like, wow, that I'm proud of myself for the way I handled that, or you know, it works both ways. It does. It does. It does. I mean, you know what scene I can come right to my head, which is something that I, oh God, I wished I had a second camera on, is the very opening in some kind of hero when Richard Pryor is is caught with his pants down. <laughs> And these guys, oh, and, and, and all the bombs are going on around them. And he's calling, you know, calling the base and he's, the other guy freaks out and he's there alone. And it's this big wide shot. I wished I had a tighter angle. I wished I had a big camera in there so I could be closer to him. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I always, time I look at that, I get, oh, it makes me angry. But you know what? Those movies are, are appreciated and, and those movies will always, you know, I, I don't think, I hate, the, I hate IMDb for the scores and I hate box office receipts because i feel like it takes away from the movie magic right? right because when i go to a movie i want to be entertained i don't care what imdb says i don't care just entertain me and, and all your movies michael have seemed to do that and i and i think that's 
that's an arena you belong in. Like, I really believe that. Can you talk a little bit about what's ahead at all? Are you able to? Well, I've got, I've got one script that I'm actually writing with my wife, which is a, 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 a memory film that takes place in the seventies, a summer relationship. That's all I'll say. And we've got a draft and we're working on it. And then there's another political comedy that I'm working on. And, uh, then I'm, you know, uh, considering a couple of other projects and uh, I think it's going to be in the indie world, but you know, listen, look, I I will say this and maybe we can sort of, you know, come to a, 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 a conclusion here about the fact that I have found talking to you, uh, very inspiring. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Thank you for that. That really means a lot. I I have to say it's a two way street on that as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, uh, there's a, uh, I, I see, I have, I look at certain directors and I go, they worked well into their seventies, some into their eighties. And my father did to the age of 85. And, uh, I look forward to the next, uh, 15 years of, uh, maybe movie directing. Well, I don't know if the, both your parents lived well into their nineties. So I'm going to, I'm going to double that and say 30 more years of movie magic. I think what's his name. The, the most, the, the longest living director who recently died was Manuel Alvarez or somebody, I forget his name exactly, 106 in Buenos Aires. Wow, and Spielberg's got to be in his 70s, right? Spielberg is probably 70. Yeah, yeah I mean, the age the age Clint, means nothing. Age means nothing. It's the, it's the quality. Is Clint 83, 84? No, Clint's 90. No. Clint is 100%. I saw the mule this year. Clint is every bit 90 years old. Yep. And it's phenomenal work. It's phenomenal work. Yep, I got I to see it. And that's what I'm saying. Like you, you never once think, "Oh, this person is old," or "This person." It's just great work is great work, Michael. You know that, you know. And I had to ask you about one person before I let you go here. You give me all your hour of your time, Margot Kidder. Um, great actor. Loved Margot Kidder. Uh, we had a great time. She, I think, she fell in love with Richard Pryor. I think they had an affair. Uh, they're both not around to pretend they didn't. Uh, but they stayed close. Um, she was already clearly unstable. Um, she was gifted. And the ending was a tragedy. Right. I don't understand what happened to her. That yeah. was just a tragedy. Uh, have you ever been, um, and I, I kind of asked you this earlier, but have you ever been overwhelmed? I mean, I looked at the actors you've worked with, you know, Frank Langella. We talked about Richard. We talked about Dan. Have you ever been in a situation where you were overwhelmed? Not overwhelmed. That's the wrong word. Um, taken back by who you're working with? Well, odd. You know, there are people, I mean, you know, the Picket Fences crowd. What a great group. I mean, I've, I've always been oh, that's the name. in love with Kathy Baker, who we had such a close relationship on those four years of that series and the gifts that he gave as an actress to that show. And um, Mandy Patinkin explosive and brilliant in Chicago Hope. I cast him in the pilot and uh, always surprised by what he did. I mean, just amazing. And um, He gets a bad name, by the way. What? Mandy Patinkin gets a bad name, by the way. People yeah. say he's very hard to work with. This and that. To me, he's a dedicated actor who kicks ass in every role he takes. You bet. You bet. You know who else? I did a TV movie once with um, and Maureen Stapleton start in it and with Mike Farrell Mike Farrell wonderful man wonderful actor and I remember we were doing a scene she played a psychiatrist and he was a psychiatrist and uh, he says to me and I understand he says I, I, can, is she having trouble with her lines is she not 
And I said, I, I can't tell. And then we looked at the dailies together. He was a producer on this film. And it was totally intended. She was so improvisational. You felt that everything was coming to her at the moment. It was like, uh, I, I don't know if, you know, it was like that. She would say, um, I, I think that you, you should probably, and it would be like that. It was, so it would be, is she struggling or is she acting? She was so believable. She was so brilliant. That, uh, that took me back a step, I must say. Jerry Stiller in those lips, those eyes. I, I, he, he, I couldn't keep a straight face with Jerry Stiller. Yeah, and, and there's another guy I wanted to ask you about. Did you have a chance to, to direct Tom Skerritt? Yes, of course, Big Offenses. Yes, right. So I wanted to make sure because I got to tell you, I saw him. People say, well, you know, they've listened to my, my homage to you today. But people talk about, I always talk about how movies just move me beyond belief. I was watching him in, in, in something, a Pick Offenses phenomenal, uh, A River Runs Through It. And, oh he, and, and he finds out he just loses his son. Michael, I got to tell you, I felt like he really lost his son. Like, I couldn't, I was just so blown away. I don't, I don't know. I will tell you, the, the key with Tom Skerritt is, and again, you, 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 the camera, you can't even see it when you're on the set, is inner truth. Inner truth. I remember a scene once. This is not about something big and dramatic, but I'm doing a scene and it's four people in a room and it's an argument, but he has no dialogue. And in the middle of the scene, he's like the fourth person standing. It's between the judge and Ray Walston, who was also fabulous, and Fibish Finkel, who we all loved, and Don Cheadle, who was amazing. And they're all arguing in this scene. And Tom had no lines. And all of a sudden, he turns around and he with his back to the camera in this big wide shot. He's looking up at the set at the window, and I'm thinking, what is Tom doing? And I'm thinking, I, I don't get it. But I let it go. I figured, you know what, I'll be in coverage. I won't see it. I looked at the scene. He was brilliant. It was like the argument was upsetting him so much that he turned and looked out the window at the city street. Now, we're on a set of 20th Century Fox. There's no, there's only a backdrop. Wow. But reality, he's looking down the street at, at the world outside as these people argue inside. And I said to him later, I said, you know, that was brilliant. And he went, oh, thank you. I said, I really was almost going to stop and say, what the hell are you doing? But <laughs> you, you had an idea, and now I get it. And, and it was just great. And it was like, thank you, thank you. I love Tom Spear. Wow. <laughs> and, and would it surprise you if I told you he was almost, he's 86 years old? Isn't that unbelievable? It is unbelievable. He, he, is, he is unbelievable. I miss him. I don't think I, I think I saw him seven or eight years ago. So wow. Michael Pressman, I cannot thank you enough. I hope when you come back to the, to the to the theater and I and I see your great work again, you'll come back on the show because this has, been, this has been one of the greatest interviews, and I, and I can't thank you enough. Well, you know what? You're phenomenal, and I know you love my work, and I can't thank you enough, and I know you mean it from the bottom of your heart. So I'm going to take it seriously and 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 take it in. Yeah, and you let me as a, as the mensch you are. You let me pester you, and you were so nice about it, so sweet for those people that are listening. I I, I got to tell you, Michael was just a class act from the start. Thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure.